0: to go now. Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I apologize for the technical uh, problems we experienced to get a late start, but Adrian, I hope you can stay with us for a few extra minutes, and uh, today thank you so much for calling in from London. Uh, we indeed do welcome Adrian Woolbridge, Management Editor for The Economist. Adrian's special report on state capitalism, The Visible Hand, is on newsstands uh, this week. I had the opportunity to look at it a, a few days earlier, in fact, I uh, saw it on my iPad last night. Uh, that's a pretty strong cover, Adrian. I bet you're it's a great cover. Yeah. It sure is. I uh, want to uh, give a special greeting as well to World Affairs Council members, economists, and clients of our, new, uh, of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, and we have three new sponsors for 2012: Alcotel Lucent, SB International, and Zenithi Global LLC. Now, remember, you can submit questions for Adrian via the chat feature on your dashboard, and we'll be sure to include just as many as we can during the next hour. One of the fun parts of listening live to Global IQ is the opportunity to win prizes, courtesy of The Economist and our sponsors uh... by being the first to correctly answer one of our challenge questions adrian's new book masters of management which was published at the end of last year is one of our prizes today as is of course a year-long subscription to the economist so stay tuned for your chance to win adrian's career at the economist has included positions such as britain correspondent west coast correspondent and washington bureau chief in his current role as management editor he covers politics social policy and social and political events. He also writes the well-known Schumpeter column where he comments and analyzes business, finance, and management. Again, thank you, Adrian, so much for uh, joining our conversation. We're very eager to talk about the cover story of this week's Economist as well as your new book, Masters of Management.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh,
0: Recently, while Western economies have, have faltered, emerging countries have shown their strengths as a result, more attention has been directed towards uh, another model, state capitalism, and some believe that state capitalism uh, has played and continues to play a significant role in the astounding growth that we have all seen in with China, Brazil, and Russia. Yet, in your special report, uh, I, I think you're somewhat less enthusiastic. Um, tell us uh, what what inclined you to write this report uh, specifically at this time, and, and perhaps a good way to uh, launch into our conversation today is. Tell us uh, the meaning of the title, The Visible Hand.
1: Well, absolutely. What we mean by state capitalism is a system in which the state plays a very important role in um, allocating capital, in uh, guiding certain chosen companies, certain national champions, um, and also in providing the sort of infrastructure, both the hard infrastructure in terms of roads and railways, but also the soft infrastructure in terms of corporate structures that uh, capitalism needs to be successful. And the meaning of the term visible hand was really a play on Adam Smith's term, the invisible hand. In Adam Smith's world, um, the invisible hand of the market plays a role, a dominant role in allocating resources. In the world of state capitalism, the invisible uh, the visible hand of the bureaucrat um, plays uh, an important role in, in, in choosing where resources should be allocated. Now, uh, you said that I'm very skeptical about this model. I am indeed skeptical about this model, but I think it's important not to overstate its, uh, its strength. Um, what led me to write this report was by looking at all of these extraordinary range of uh, new companies that are emerging on the world scene, lots of uh, petrochemical and gas companies, but also lots of companies in areas such as uh, computers, in areas such as mobile phones, in more sophisticated areas that are largely owned by the state uh, and also, of course, the astonishing rise of of China, which is the the most important and powerful state capitalist power. And it's certainly that all of this was going on, all of this energy was being released in the emerging world at exactly the time when um, liberal capitalism, our model of capitalism, the Western model of capitalism, has been through its most serious crisis, I think, uh, since the Second World War. So the combination of Um, The rise of state capitalist companies and state capitalist uh, powers such as China with the huge crisis in the West led me to think, well, there's a real debate, there's a real debate about economic models going on here and we really need to engage in this debate.
0: And we've popped up uh, one of the graphics that appeared in your special report, The Power and the Glory, and uh, I note that it includes China, Russia, and Brazil, and maybe go into a, a bit of detail about that, but
1: but why not uh, India, the eye in the brick? Sure. Well, I should say that what we mean by state capitalism is not quite the same thing as what one used to mean by state capitalism. It's not a system whereby the state actually runs companies itself. What it does is to hold big shareholdings in companies um, and to manage them sort of indirectly through, through uh, almost as a collective shareholder, um, just as you and I are shareholders in companies, rather than as a direct bureaucratic um, controller. And it is the case that in China, 80% of the stock, mar- uh, stock market is accounted for by uh, the state, by state money, 62% in India. About thirty-eight percent in Brazil, the the the, 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 um, the the three other members of the BRICS, and India, it's only about eleven percent. It's much lower in India, and whereas in China, Russia, and Brazil, state capitalist companies are the most vigorous, quite often uh, champions in those various economies. In Brazil, they tend to be left in. Um, in India, they tend to be leftovers from the old uh, license raj. So India hasn't really embraced this model with the same enthusiasm. That uh, the other three bricks have.
0: But state capitalism has really been around for a long time in various hybrid forms. Um, uh, I guess the East India Company is, is indeed a good, good example.
1: Yes, absolutely. The East India Company uh, is an extraordinary example because this was a company that really had a, li- had a license from the uh, government, um, had the government playing a very active role in protecting it, encouraging it, providing ships to help uh, its um, royal navy ships to help its uh, help it on its way um, it was completely intertwined with the british state and of course it went on to to govern india and uh, much of the far east and was a huge example of this well generally I think it is the case that emerging countries um, when they're in the early stages of growth tend to allocate quite an important role to the to the government so this was true of um Japan and the famous MITI system, which was its uh, Ministry of uh, uh, Technology in the, um, ni- in the 1970s. It was true of Germany in the 1870s, where the government played a very important role in protecting through protectionism, through, through trade barriers. Um, in Singapore, uh, I guess, was the perfect example. Uh, Singapore, another example. So, we've always seen this phenomenon uh, historically. But what's happening now I think is is slightly different or it's an improved version of that model uh, and I think it's more important partly because as I say instead of having very direct controls you're having the state acting as a shareholder in otherwise uh, similar companies and companies that are similar to global companies. They're also using globalization in a different way. Quite often in the past what countries would do would be to build up barriers against um, foreign competitors in order to protect their infant industries, in order to protect their weak companies, um, or else they would uh, step in to protect companies when they were obviously suffering from foreign competition. What the Chinese in particular uh, are tending to do is actually use globalization as a way of making those companies um, more powerful, to test them against the, the best in, in the world, and they're also embracing globalization. They're sending these companies out very quickly.
0: get into this in a, in a bit more detail later in the report about how some of the countries particularly China and Russia may not have state control over as many companies uh, they narrow it down but when we look at this next graphic we see that the energy industry and utilities I, I guess in a sense large infrastructure uh, projects are the ones where you see a greater amount of, of state control
1: absolutely there's been a long-standing debate about what's going on in the emerging world is the market Um, advancing? Or is the state advancing? Uh, And you can produce uh, obvious examples of the the market is advancing in the sense of the uh, number, the proportion of the actual economy that the country, uh, that the the state mechanism controls is much, much lower now than it was 20 years ago when these were all completely state-dominated countries. But what's happening really is a process of pruning. The state is retreating from lots and lots of areas. It doesn't manufacture local toothpaste and things like that. But what it's doing is consolidating its grip, strengthening its grip on the, what they would call the commanding heights of the economy. Uh, And that's partly infrastructure, but it's uh, partly some uh, areas of technology or car making or things like that. What they want to have, uh, particularly the Chinese, is in all the most important areas of the economy to have a handful of national champions that are owned by and controlled indirectly by the state. Um, to give them strength. So the state is, is really pruning its ownership of the economy. Let's not manufacture toothpaste, but let's make sure that we have a national champion that can build infrastructure, a national champion that can be in the telecoms business, a national champion that can be in the computer business. So, so China will have a good proportion of uh, the world's most successful companies in
0: important areas. And, of course, I guess with energy, in particular with China, that's, that's a national security issue to be able to have access to enough of uh, uh, the commodities uh, so that their national security is not at risk.
1: The Chinese are absolutely obsessed by energy um, and the supply of energy, and they have this fear that they won't have enough energy. They know that they're growing very fast. They know they've gone from being an exporter to an importer of a lot of energy, so they, they want to get hold for the long-term future, not just for the next couple of years, but for the the long-term future of raw materials, particularly oil, but also gas, but also lots and lots of minerals. So what they're doing is making sure that their state companies go out to Africa and wherever else there are raw materials available and get hold of them. They quite often get hold of them by striking long-term deals with local governments uh, saying um, we will help you mine these things, we will help you pump out this
0: and, and there's been t- issues uh, in, in history uh, events that have really uh, affected the, the growth of state capitalism. And I guess one of the, the major ones that we're, we're still continue to feel, and uh, that's the Arab oil embargo. Um, and I'd like to go to that graphic that that shows the the, the degree of state ownership of the, of the various oil companies, and, and ask you to comment more on the impact of the Arab oil, Arab oil embargo. Hello. Hello. Well, we continue to have a technical problem. I apologize so much to, to, our, to our listeners. We'll, we'll figure out why that is. Uh, we we're on a direct landline, so uh, I'm a little puzzled why we're having this problem. But let me go on and, and, and do the first uh, challenge question, if I may, while we're waiting for Adrian to, to come back online. And we are going to do our very best uh, to figure out what, what the issue is. Uh the, the question that i want to ask is the the term brick was originally coined by an economist for uh which investment bank in 2001 uh was that JP Morgan Chase Goldman Sachs Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse uh the winner of that uh will get back with the correct answer first will win um, the economist wall calendar and i got to tell you that is my favorite wall calendar i've been receiving it for about three years. In fact, the Economist didn't even start uh, d- producing the Wall Calendar until then. Um, if you don't by chance don't win today, uh, you can get a copy of the Economist Wall Calendar uh, by going to the Economist website, and I think you would uh, like to, like to get that. One of the things as, as well that I was reading about in the day's paper uh, was just an, announced a few hours ago that General Motors is again the world's largest automaker. Um, and uh, uh, Toyota, of course, experienced uh, uh, an issue last year uh, due to the tsunami. Uh, but GM's worldwide sales rose uh, to 9 million vehicles, an increase of 7.6%. Um, and, of course, the United States government still owns a significant amount of the company. Uh, I believe it owns about 30%, uh, although that GM has repaid about uh, 24 billion dollars of the forty nine point five billion in federal government aid that it received uh, one of the interesting things about general motors is that uh... while it has increased the number of vehicles that it sold uh... its management said uh... the real test will be uh... profitability uh... for for the company um, so we'll have to see how that how that develops uh, another thing that was interesting about these figures and it always shows how careful you have to be when you grab uh, newspaper uh, stories all, all off the web. Uh, most of the headlines say that GM is again the world's largest automaker and that is viewed as a very positive story and yet uh, one of the stories that I saw I said that uh, there was a question um, about how uh, some of uh, GM's uh, uh, subsidiary in China, it's called the Wooling Company, it's Chinese subsidiary uh, whether or not those uh, numbers should have been counted in that, uh, because it does not have uh, wholly own ownership of that. So I thought that was a, a pretty interesting story to, to take a take a look at. There's there's something else too that I that I picked up uh, yesterday. Uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote uh, a fascinating piece talking about is banking bad, um, and he was uh, again uh, taking sort of a look at what was happening. Um, uh, with the uh, uh, demonstrations have been happening all over the country and, and looking as well at, uh, at Mitt Romney's campaign, uh, whether or not um, uh, Bain was destroying companies and picking over the carcasses or, or really stimulating the economy. And one thing that Christoph says is that, you know, and I'll quote from this, he said, liberals should be very wary of self-selecting out of certain occupations uh, and Christoph goes on to say, after Vietnam and revelations of CIA abuses in the 1970s, many university students avoided the military and intelligence agencies. So slots were filled disproportionately by ideological conservatives in a way that undermined everyone's interests. Uh, he says, we would have been better off if more Swarthmore idealists had become generals and CIA officers, and we may be better off if some idealists become bankers as, as well. Um, Christoph goes on to say uh, that public skepticism may indeed be warranted uh, because corporations have vastly paid, uh, overpaid CEOs, et cetera, et cetera, and that was a piece that appeared in the uh, New York Times by Nicholas Christoph on January 18th, and you know, when you're talking about compensation, and indeed I hope we'll have Adrian back in a few minutes, um, hopefully in a, even in a few seconds. Uh, But one of the things he talks about in the special report that's in this week's Economist is the compensation of uh, some of the Chinese executives uh, is dramatically lower than what you might expect, and uh, their careers are are really quite at risk because uh, many of them are indeed uh, uh, employees of the government, um, and so they can be moved from one company to another, uh, almost as, as, as in this country we might get promoted within our company, in the case of China many uh, executives are moved from one company to another and uh, he also talks about something i would never seen before how most of the uh, Chinese CEOs would have a red phone on their desk that has uh, direct access uh, to, to the uh, to the uh, party apparatus, That's the Communist Party apparatus of course, so uh, the, the, the line of Big Brother is, is never very far away. Uh, the correct answer um, for the trivia question, uh, the term a "brick" was originally coined by an economist for which investment bank in 2001? Uh, the answer uh, out of it was was it J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, or Credit Suisse? Uh, Albert Plunkett, thank you, Albert. You uh, got the correct answer, uh, which of course was Goldman Sachs. I believe it was uh, James O'Neill who coined the phrase first. At at Goldman Sachs, and you'll be winning, and we'll send it to you just as quickly as possible. The 2012 Wall Calendar from The Economist. And again, I want to remind you that you can get that calendar by going to www.economist.com. We are still having problems with Adrian reaching Adrian. I'm going to chat with you for another minute or two, and then if we don't get him, I think we will. As they would as, as as some of the political candidates would say, we will suspend today 's program, and we will reschedule it when we are absolutely sure that we have our technology working again. Um, we had run a test of this earlier this morning, so again uh, I'm as puzzled and um, uh, as you and I know that you have scheduled a lot of your uh, morning around this, and we appreciate that, so we know it's a, a great inconvenience to you and uh, for those of you who have signed up, we're certainly going to figure out a way to, uh, to reward you and compensate you for, for your patience and, and kindness because this is uh, nothing that we'd like to, to have happen. Let me just go over another story that I picked up early this morning. It said that entrepreneurship spikes around the world but U.S. is in the most innovative study finds. And uh, this just came out by the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor and um, it did show that uh, entrepreneurship is growing in the United States, but said that Chile and China have recently become more entrepreneurial countries, and when you look at the wealthier economies like the U.S. and Western Europe, you're seeing a huge increase in entrepreneurship. You know, I was just thinking, since we may be suspending the program, and we do have a number of listeners, let me just uh, do what I know Adrian would like to be doing, and that's telling you a little bit about his book that just came out. As I mentioned, it was published in um, uh, about the end of November. And,
1: hello. Um, hello, Adrian. Hello. there. Yeah, sorry. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I called in a couple of times, and it seems to have worked.
0: Well, we're glad you're here, and we still kept most of our listeners. Uh, we went ahead and did a, um, a Global IQ Challenge question, and I was just getting ready to uh, read them your book uh, page by page, but I'm glad oh, that yes. we well, don't have to do uh, <laughs> a little bit of time. <laughs> Don't have to do that. I tell you, that was a little. We were gone for a long time, but we're glad you're back. So let's let's no, get no, right.
1: Strangely, while, while while I was gone, I was actually listening to what you were saying because and am um, trying to talk, but you you couldn't hear me. And I was fascinated by what you were saying about the um, the way that the Chinese government intervenes with the sort of minutiae of business. On the one hand, it claims to be allowing its national champions to function just like ordinary companies, and on the other hand, it will come along and actually just sack the, uh, not quite sack, move around the heads of heads of the big companies. Um, and I, there was an astonishing story about the head of uh, one of the big telecom companies. He was just going to, uh, this was a few years ago, he was just going to make a presentation when his company was being floated on the stock market in Hong Kong. And suddenly he got a text saying, uh, actually, you're no longer head of this company. You've been moved to be head of one of its main rivals. Which I think he found very hard to explain to all the various investors who are just about to buy shares in his company. But this happens on a routine basis. They rotate the heads of various companies, um, you know, oil companies and telecom companies and other sorts of companies. You will just be told by the um, Chinese um, central government, by its uh, sort of labour department, you're moving. You're going somewhere else, or you'll be told uh, either to move from one company to another or to move from a company to some position within the, within the bureaucracy, so it's an extraordinarily tight system of uh, central control that they have there.
0: Well, one of the things that I, I think is so interesting about China, given all that, they still seem to put quite a bit of emphasis on, on training their executives and sending them to some of the top business schools of, uh, around the country, around the world, and yet there also seems to be uh, perhaps an increase in, in uh, cronyism and, and, and I, I guess, really just cronyism.
1: Well, absolutely. It's, it's, it, 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 it's peculiar because um, I'm, I'm not sure that I would entirely use the word cronyism to describe what's going on in in China. There are elements of cronyism, but there are also elements of an extraordinary sort of ruthless efficiency. When they move uh, a CEO from one company to another, or from a company to the to another job, running a province or something like that, it's not quite just cronyism. They think that they're doing it, you know, to broaden their experience and to move them up the the party hierarchy and to give them. Uh, a new view of the world, Um, so uh, they're doing that, they're also, as you say, uh, making sure that people are trained very well, it's becoming quite common now for the CEOs to have MBAs to go to Western American business schools to really uh, be au fait with the global language of business, the the way the global business operates. So you'll have a CEO, you'll have an MBA, you'll have experience in the public sector, as well as experience in the private sector, so he'll be a pretty impressive animal when he reaches the top of, uh, uh, of the system, so there's a bit of cronyism, they haven't entirely got rid of cronyism, but also there's a real attempt to sort of create a Mandarin elite of people who, who know how global capitalism works, and one of the peculiar things about this system of rotation that they have is that you're getting people who run big companies, um, who've had, got Western <coughs> MBAs and Western experience who are then going to run bits of the public sector as well, who are going to run provinces and things like that. So you've got some quite impressive people in the public sector as well as the private sector. So the, the bad side of, uh, of this is an element of cronyism. The good side is that you're getting people with quite broad experience moving uh, around at the top of these companies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate a lot of these people.
0: What about compensation? I touched about that on, on that when you, when you worked with us, but you were able to hear that. Um, h- how is that really decided? Uh, and, and, and how does compensation for chief executives, say, uh, compare in China and, and, and
1: Russia? Um, well, this, this is one of the most remarkable things. The Chinese are very concerned with having a harmonious society. Uh, and they're very concerned that the elite doesn't become too rich in self-indulgent. So what they've done formally, is to put um, a restriction on how much money people can be paid. So I think the top paid Chinese executive, the guy who runs the biggest oil company, has a salary of $184,000. And most of the CEOs have half of that as their compensation. So that's what they've done, just created the law. You can't be paid too much. This is what you're given. But in fact, of course, it's very different from that because the published compensation that people have there's no relationship to the real compensation they have, so they're really very well remunerated. Um, they have lots of apartments. They have lo- uh, a really very luxurious lifestyle. They're very uh, much a pampered elite, so um, the, the payment comes in informal rather than formal ways. Uh, so they, these are well remunerated. And I think if you look at China, if you go to China, one thing you will see is that the people who run these, these, these companies are the princelings. They're the Chinese elite. They, you can, if you look, the whole of the skyline of Beijing now is dominated by these huge corporate headquarters of these powerful state companies. You can see these guys going in and out, uh, going to their offices, you know, wearing beautiful seats, suits, uh, being driven in chauffeur-driven cars with blackened windows. They're obviously uh, an elite. They're they've pulled away from the rest of society. They go to Western business schools. They'll send their children to Western. Uh, to Harvard, to other Western schools, they're very much um, a self-conscious, uh, sophisticated elite that's really living in a different world. They're the one percent. They're living in a different world from uh, the 99 percent in the rest of society, and I think that is creating a lot of social tensions. As for Russia, <laughs> Russia it has a, an extraordinary system. It's much more like a sort of kleptocracy than anywhere else in the world. You have a lot of people sitting in the Kremlin who are politicians, ministers who will also at the same time be senior figures if not CEOs in companies at exactly the same time and these I think half of the members of the Russian cabinet now are billionaires, billionaires not just millionaires Uh, so there you really do have um, uh, a small political clique creaming off a lot of society's
0: resources. With a clear understanding if you've overstepped your bounds you might find yourself in prison.
1: Absolutely. One of the interesting things that happened in, 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 in Russia is that, you know, in the 1990s, uh, you really had this the rise of this class of oligarchs who operated in the private sector, who were extraordinarily wealthy, um, and who um, dabbled in politics. And what Putin did was to tell these people, A, stay out of politics. Uh, you can have a bit of money, you can have your money, you can have your billions, but you mustn't overstep the mark. But secondly, he created a new class of bureaucrats, sort of oligarchs within the bureaucracy who run most of the the big oil and gas companies and other mineral companies who are primarily uh, politicians. And I think the oligarchs are tamed. The oligarchs are not that important. This new class of bureaucrats, all of whom are connected to Putin in some sort of way, where the real power and increasingly the wealth in Russia belongs. So the state-owned companies, And a way in which a particular cast of people around Putin, many of them uh, former KGB operatives, have recaptured control of the commanding heights of the economy. We
0: have a a listener question, which I'll ask that we go back to the slide on the uh, energy business. But the, the question is, is haven't Russian state companies recently forced uh, BP, British Petroleum, to sell to them significant shares of exploration, joint ventures, in effect, using their governmental status to exhort sales of assets at unfair prices?
1: Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, and I think that one of the things about doing business in these uh, countries is that uh, you know, it's extremely difficult to do business in a world where... The state is on the side of one of your competitors, and in this case, BP was 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 was, was very badly treated. So I think we'll, that, that's going to be a, a, a big problem in the future.
0: Well, one of the questions that I really wanted you to elaborate on, and, and that is, Saudi Arabia, Aramco has a very good reputation. On the other hand, invest uh, you know, in Venezuela doesn't. Um, Sort of. Get, is, is that just a, a fact of the political leadership, or, or how do you see see that? And what about some of the the, the other countries where state ownership is, is is so large in the energy sector?
1: Well, I think one of the one of the things that uh, it used to be the case, if you go back 15 or 20 years ago, that most state companies, including state oil companies, were really quite badly run. Um, they were extremely overmanned, they were extremely unproductive compared with their private sector counterparts. And over that period, there's been a huge attempt to improve the management of those companies. They've done lots of um, deals with private sector companies, uh, oil companies, to get some of their expertise. They've slimmed down their workforce. They've improved their management very considerably. And I would say Saudi Aramco is, is one of the best run um, companies in the oil business in the world. Uh, Where that hasn't happened is probably pretty unusual. Venezuela is uh, an example of a uh, you know something that's run for the benefit of a ruling clique and uh, a particular ruler uh, 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 at the top of that, and they really haven't bothered to to, uh, improve their companies. So the overall pattern is one of improvements, and the exceptions are those that are really incredibly badly run. Like, and I guess Mexico
0: would. Mexico Mexico, Mexico,
1: Mexico, Mexico has really not done anything like as much as it should have done to improve, improve the management of its, uh, of its oil companies. But if you look at, uh, at Brazil, it's a pretty well-run company, even in Russia, which has got its problems. They're not, uh, they're not disastrously run companies, and, of course, the Chinese companies are, are well-run. So the, the pattern is one of improvements with Mexico. And uh, obviously, Venezuela being examples where they haven't done that. There are signs within Mexico. There's a lot more noise being made about improving the the management of their state oil oil, oil company, but not as bad. I would say that the average within the state-owned sector is not as good as the average in the private sector. But nevertheless, there's been a huge improvement over the last 15 years of management of those companies. We were talking earlier about you know where. Uh, this new model of state uh, ownership came from before my phone unfortunately went silent. And I think that the oil issue was one of the most important ones, that after the Arab oil embargo, um, the Arab countries saw the power of controlling their, their own oil. They sort of saw that it could be a source of wealth for them and it could also be a source of political power. The Chinese saw how um, oil supplies could be cut off, so they said, well, we need to get, a, get hold of ours. Uh, so that was one of the big sources of, uh, of this. Another big source I think was the success of Singapore which sort of had this combination of being open to global capitalism but also having a heavy hand of the of the state. Um, so Singapore became a model for um, state capitalism. And the other important thing I think was what happened in the Soviet Union or Russia post Soviet Union in the 1990s where we had a very sort of, uh, uncontrolled period of wild privatization, very, Chinese and indeed the Russians decided was that we can't go for this sort of anarchic version of capitalism. We must bring the state back to provide uh, more order and control. So those were the those were things that really drove this new version of state capitalism spreading around the world.
0: You know, you cannot watch any of the Republican uh, debates right now without hearing about the role of government. What should the role of government be in business? And uh, this past weekend, the New York Times uh, went into considerable detail about uh, High-speed rail projects that have been uh, touted by the Obama administration um, as you know, potential successes, and most of these have already been scuttled. Um, does you know, the, the effort to build certain uh, large infrastructure initiatives, such as internet access, uh, utilities, transportation, uh, would, would state capitalism, uh, a, a, is there a lesson for for all of us uh, here that that don't really necessarily espouse uh, state capitalism?
1: Yes. Yeah, well, the the state, the state capitalist countries, particularly China, have been incredibly impressive at building infrastructure. And you can say, from a sort of theoretical point of view, that private companies will tend to underinvest in infrastructure because they can't capture all the benefits of it, without having very elaborate uh, tolls. So the government can step in to provide some of the subsidies and some of the infrastructure. And classically, it has been the case that governments have, have invested heavily in the infrastructure of their company. they haven't left it all to the private sector. And um, I went on the high-speed work rail from um, Beijing, from, from Shanghai to Beijing, and I must say it's an extraordinary experience and a very embarrassing one if you happen to be, as I am, an Englishman who's used to travelling on, on British rail. Uh, the railway stations, um, uh, extraordinarily beautiful, well preserved, brand new, um, clean, very well managed. The train which I went on went at the steady speed of. 300 kilometers an hour, you know, it was completely smooth, the journey um, uh, across the country, there wasn't a single, uh, you know, left and it arrived on time, it was extremely comfortable and much less hassle than sort of flying, a really enjoyable experience at a very high speed, it's very strange to to travel on a train at 300 kilometers an hour um, for what I think was four and a half hours Um, and you get across the country and you arrive, uh, you know, in, in a new city. Having had this experience, it's it's, uh, it's it's better than I think one would get on Amtrak. However, they have had problems with this high-speed train. I'm glad to say mine arrived perfectly safely, but they have had two that have crashed into each other, killing I think 39 people. Right. And as a result of that, I think they used to go on at an average of 400 kilometres an hour. They slowed them down by 100 kilometres an hour. So there have been teething problems certainly. Um, But it's quite, you know, I must say as a a, a foreigner, if you go to China, you see the airports, you see the train stations, you go on these high-speed trains, it is very impressive. This is brand-new, state-of-the-art infrastructure, and they've been very good at that. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, state subsidies, the state throwing money at these things. The Chinese have also got a lot of infrastructure companies now, big infrastructure companies that are going around the world doing exactly the same. Uh, in foreign countries, I think uh, four of the five biggest infrastructure companies in the world. I'm afraid I can't remember their their names. uh, are Chinese. They're all over the place building bridges, schools, hospitals, um, airports, and I think they're building some uh, some infrastructure in the United States as well. So they're, they're, they're they're globally competitive businesses.
0: Right. You know, another major part of your report, of course, was a different the role of sovereign wealth funds. And um, before we start talking about that, I do want to remind our listeners that you can go ahead and ask a question and put it in the chat room, and we'll do our very best to get to it. But as I mentioned, uh, sovereign wealth funds now are another way that countries can exert influence, uh, their economic influence, and would you tell us uh, your study on that? And also about how there's really two kinds of sovereign wealth funds. Uh, you specify savings and development.
1: Yes, yeah, so the first thing I heard when I woke up um, this morning, listening to the the radio news, was that one of China's sovereign wealth funds has just bought ten percent of Thames Water, which is our biggest uh, water company and the biggest uh, certainly down in the south. Uh, so you know the idea that the Chinese, a Chinese state company, essentially is providing London. Uh, with its water or has got 10% of the company that's providing London with its water is, is something we could be hearing a lot more about at the moment because the Chinese uh, of course and also the uh, Arab uh, petrostate companies uh, are very, very cash, cash rich. They've got vast amounts of money um, and they've been putting these money into sort of pools of capital sovereign wealth funds which uh, uh, they want to make money out of obviously. Uh, so they're exporting this money. They're buying up a lot of, uh, they're investing in, in, in companies, you know, Western banks. So they've invested in a lot of Western banks, uh, Western industrial companies, Western infrastructure companies. Um, so they're all over the place. I think the site that is the British embassy that's now been sold um, in London has been bought by one of the Arab sovereign wealth funds. So the United States there has been bought up. I think uh, the the uh, Chrysler building is now largely owned by um, another Arab sovereign wealth fund. Um, but it tended to be the ca- there are two different forms of sovereign wealth funds. One is uh, just essentially like a pension fund, it's a, a way of um, raising money and you, and you invest in a fairly neutral way all around the world in order to maximize returns for your shareholders. But another kind is much more concerned with promoting development within your own country. So you invest in high high tech um, in various industries which you want to see developing in Dubai or you want to see developing in uh, Beijing or or, um, whatever part of your country you target. And I think that the move away from uh, towards a more developmental model has been quite rapid since the financial crisis when incidentally one of the big Chinese uh, sovereign wealth funds lost a great deal of its money by putting it simply into into Western banks. So the idea is to use these these pools of capital um, as tools of economic development and I think that's the rising idea with, within the world of sovereign wealth funds at the moment. Do you, do you think the attitude in this
0: country has changed uh, regarding uh, acquisitions? I mean we all remember what happened with China and Unical or the uh, Dubai ports.
1: Well, well I think we've heard very much less about it than, than, than with Unical and Dubai ports, which both. Uh, unleashed a sort of hysteria because I think, you know, if somebody wants to come and invest in, West, in in an American company, I think the feeling at the moment is that's a good thing. But nevertheless, I see big problems ahead. I think there's going to be another Unical, there's going to be another Dubai port. There's going to be something that's really going to inflame uh, sentiments uh, of a protectionist and anti-competitive nature because people are going to say, and I think not, not completely unreasonable, look at these guys, look at the Chinese or look at the... Um, these um, big Arab companies, they're not um, playing by our rules, the, 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 they have access to sources of cheap money and, as, uh, 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 and political influence, which Western companies don't have. So we're fighting, as it were, with one hand tied behind our back. They have, they have the, the, the government on their side, and this is unfair competition. I think this is going to be one of the big uh, worries in the world. And I think the tension, uh, the feeling of worry about the rise of China in the United States is huge but also the feeling that they're, they, they're, 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 they're not playing a straight bat as it were and we need to, 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 to get something back on them. So I, I think there are big trading tensions on the way. You
0: know Adrian, it's interesting you mentioned that I have in front of me an article that appeared in the Washington Post at the end of last year uh, where the U.S. Ambassador to the World Trade Organization, uh, Michael Punk. Um, said, and let me just read this, China seems to me embracing state capitalism more strongly each year rather than continuing to move toward the economic reforms that originally drove its pursuit of WTO membership. This is a troubling development, and the United States urges the Chinese government to reconsider the path it is on. Um, He said there's a growing perception in the United States and around the world that China uses, uh, quote, intimidation to get its way in trade.
1: Absolutely. I think the ambassador is absolutely right about what's happening. It's both the case that they are embracing state capitalism more vigorously than they have before. You know, when they joined the WTO, that w- wasn't the assumption. When they joined the WTO, the assumption was that you'd have a move more towards the market. But what you're having is more, a move more towards the market in the sense that these companies are all you know, listed on the stock market. But they're also um, in bed with the, with the government. It's a sort of hybrid situation which nobody doing the WTO negotiations really expected. To happen, and if, you know, if your competitor has access to cheap capital or free capital or free land or all sorts of resources that, you're, that, that you don't have, it's a very skewed uh, system. And I, you know, there's a lot of worry about this. It's, it's, it's a common complaint in the European Union uh, as well as the United States. And I think this is going to get more only only more important in the in, in the future because you're seeing companies um, that. Um, are trying to fight for their lives and suddenly they're confronted with a takeover bid or confronted with a competitor that's got essentially infinite access to free money.
0: Let's go to our second challenge question. I think it's one that you'll probably know the answer to Adrian, so uh, don't tell it, don't give it up. Um, the question is is who popularized the term creative destruction in economics? Was it Milton Friedman, Karl Marx? Joseph Schumpeter. And how do you pronounce Schumpeter's name? I want to be sure I get that right. I think it's Schumpeter. Schumpeter. And of course, John Maynard Keynes, who popularized the term. Uh, Be the first person to give us the correct answer to this, and you'll receive a copy of Matthews of Management. And while we're looking at that that cover, Adrian, tell us more about your book.
1: Well, my book um, is really an attempt to um, assess the merits and the virtues of management gurus, all these business gurus who tell us how to run our businesses, um, how to make money, how to grow rich, how to, how to run a successful company, how to manage your supply chains. There's, there's all of these people, you see them in the Wall Street Journal, you see them in the Harvard Business Review, you see them on television. If, you go to, if you're in business yourself, you go to endless conferences where management gurus sit there and explain how the world works and how your company can be much better than it is. And what I am trying to do in that book is to assess which one's talking sense and which ones are not talking sense. Uh, I then go on to say, well, given that the there is some sense talked amongst all the sort of jargon and the nonsense, what are they telling us about the world? And I try and look at the way that they really do, I think, illuminate some of the big global trends in business uh, and have some very practical and sensible advice on things like the war for talent, on things like the rise of the internet uh, and what to do. What about it and even indeed on how to to manage the public sector so it's an audit uh, really of uh, the management guru industry, the management theory industry and what my claim is really is don't read any of their books because you don't need to anymore. You have it all brilliantly written and clearly presented (laughs) in my book. (laughs) Now are you a critic or a skeptic about uh, corporate social responsibility? I'm quite a sceptic about uh, about it because I do actually think that Adam Smith was right in *The Invisible Hand* when he said that companies are in the business of making the world better by serving their customers. You know, they may not do it out of altruism; they do it they do it out of uh, seeking profits. But the magic of the hidden hand is is, is what makes them serve the common good. Now, I'm, I don't want to sound too Panglossian. There are, there are bad companies that break the law. Uh, there are badly managed companies um, that. Um, that, 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 that do appalling things, of which obviously Enron was a, was a big example to think of your corner of the world. But nevertheless, on the whole, um, you don't need to um, you have lots of exhaustations about companies uh, doing good. What they need to do is concentrate on, on being companies, on making stuff and, and, and selling stuff. And quite often, I think, a lot of this corporate social responsibility does, does actually produce. Uh, a lot of sort of uh, nice sort of pictures of, uh, uh, of sunflowers and things like that, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really add up to a lot of have otherwise. So if a company is a good oil company or if a company is a good um, fast food company, I should say, or if a company is a good, good grocery or supermarket, if you look at Whole Foods, uh, if you look at Tesco's, uh, that's good enough, you know. You're, you're, you're doing good by, by, by serving your customers.
0: Well, uh, I look forward to reading the book, and uh, in just a minute, I know who, there we go. Let me see. Uh, Christopher Hicks. Congratulations, Christopher. Y- you answered correctly. And um,
1: Adrian, what's the correct answer? Who popularized the term creative uh, and economics? <laughs> it's Joseph Schumpeter, I should say. I do, I do happen to know that because I write a column uh, which is named after him, and it is a wonderful phrase about creative destruction because I think it does capture um, a lot of what, 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 what capitalism does, you know, there is, it's quite harsh, but what uh, the harshness does in the end do is to, to create more wealth. I'm afraid at the moment we may be seeing a bit too much of the destruction side and not quite enough of the creation side, but I think historically it's always been the case that, that more wealth has been, been created in the long term.
0: Well, I certainly look forward to reading it. I I read a few reviews, and Alan Murray, who is uh, Deputy Managing Editor of the Wall Street Journal, said it is a good read. So uh, hopefully it'll be the bestseller, like your earlier book, The Witch Doctors, uh, was that you you wrote with your editor. Exactly, yes. Good. We have uh, another question that came in from Marcella. How sustainable do you see this model, of course state capitalism, in the very long run? Does that model allow countries to become world powers for a long time, or does the model have a threshold after which more growth is not possible?
1: That's a great question and it's one that I've exercised uh, as much thinking as I can on. I was talking to a great expert on this subject in Hong Kong and he spent 45 minutes telling me that this was a terrible system, it was corrupt, it was inefficient, it led to cronyism. Uh, And I said, gosh, that's awful. I said, "How how long do you give the system? He said, "Oh, not not long. You're not long. It's, it's it's due for imminent collapse. I don't give it more than 50 years, which I thought was a very Chinese sense of uh, sense of time. Um, but I also think this, this it's not a bad uh, actual assessment of what's going on. I think uh, state capitalism is uh, at its best when company when countries are entering into a growth cycle when they have lots of labor, lots of capital." Uh, and when the big question is just allocating as much labor and as much capital as, as big problems as you can, particularly big infrastructure problems, it's quite a good way of preserving some sort of sense of, of order, um, making sure that society doesn't break down, making sure that you go through this transition uh, that, that's embodied in, in rapid economic growth in a fairly ordered way. What it's not so good at is coming up with new ideas, innovation, creativity making more efficient use of limited amounts of capital and labor on the incremental phase of, uh, of, of capitalism. of course, how could it be that good at innovation and creativity when it goes hand in hand with autocracy um, and lack of democracy and lack of freedom of expression, you know, so that's what its limits are. And I think increasingly these countries are going to start, ex- for the last 10 years they've be really been experiencing the upside of this system, the potential of this system. Increasingly, they're going to be experiencing the downside and the difficulties as capital becomes, you know, a bit of a rarer commodity as uh, labour costs go up. Um, and the real thing, the importance lies in the efficiency of how you allocate your resources, not just not just uh, get, getting things started. Uh, and I would also say that I think there's a there's a limit to the social stabi- sustainability of this model because what you're seeing now is a huge amount of capital, of talent. Uh, being allocated to a handful, I think in in China's case, it's about 120 big, giant, state-backed companies. And those companies are run by people who are very powerful, very privileged, and, you know, whatever they say about their their salaries, in fact, extremely rich. And you see a lot of resentment of that, and you're seeing these huge corporate headquarters springing up across Shanghai and Beijing at a time when ordinary people, ordinary entrepreneurs who are running, you know, private companies, can't get any capital at all, can't get any money, you know, it's difficult for them to get money, the banks won't lend to them, they're starved of, starved of investment funds and then all of a sudden you see China central television employing one of the world's most expensive architects to build some sort of giant, giant uh, corporate headquarters and people are angry about that.
0: Yeah, and I think you went into considerable detail about the the Chinese banks. I mean, if if you are a state-run company, you have all the advantages to get financing, where if you're a small to medium-sized independent uh, company, you are are out there on your own in very different Absolutely.
1: You have virtually free money. Uh, You know, very, very subsidized loans, you know, which arrive on time when you want them. If you're a Chinese uh, oil company investing in Africa, let's say, you know, in a big project in Africa, money is not an obstacle. It's not something you even think about. But if you're an ordinary entrepreneur down in the south of China where, you know, you have that big industrial heartland, there is a huge uh, space of stories now about suicides uh, uh, because people just can't pay back their loans because they can't get money from the bank. The bank won't even talk to them. So they go to private loan sharks, uh, and the private loan sharks then get very nasty when, you know, charge very high interest rates, and if you don't pay them back, it's not a... A very pleasant thing to, to do. These are not very uh, good people, and so you have an extraordinary position whereby, you know, some some big companies are rolling in money. They have too much money. They're wasting it on extravagant headquarters, uh, and yet people in the productive entrepreneurial economy just can't get any money at all, and they're having to go to you know, you know, not to banks but to, to loan shops.
0: Well, I have to tell you as a Texan who's been here since the 80s when most of the Texas banks failed, uh, one of the things they did was to see who could have the tallest building.
1: Yes, I, you know, I was thinking actually um, of, um, I, I think corporate headquarters, very extravagant headquarters are actually uh, a sign not of success but actually of decadence. They're a sign that something's going wrong uh, and there's, uh, I was looking at a wonderful Chinese website um, that's uh, done by ordinary Chinese people, and uh, a big chunk of it just consists of pictures of uh, photographs of corporate headquarters of state companies. Uh, one of which is done uh, like Versailles, you know, all gilding all over the place and very elaborate rooms, and uh, it looks like a, a French chateau or a French, a French palace. And this is not a sensible. And that is, in fact, that's the, the headquarters of a pharmaceutical company. I was looking at, think what just to do with the ego of, of the boss. So I think that uh, absolutely, you're absolutely right that the, the, the parallel with that great uh, <laughs> period of extravagance in Texan uh, history, building these tall towers, which are all about ego, really.
0: Um, uh, well, Adrian, I want is, to thank you so much for important. being with us, and, and I certainly want to thank our listeners and, and for their patience. Uh, we're coming up on, on the hour. I uh, want to encourage everyone to read Adrian's special report, The Visible Hand, that is in this week's edition of The Economist. Um, and also uh, do what I'm going to do, and go to Amazon and order uh, Masters of Management. Oh, and thank you. I'm really eager eager to, to read it, and we'll have a link on our website. Uh, again, thanks so much, Adrian, for, for making a special effort to be with us. If by chance you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, go to economist.com to start your subscription today. And if you look right now, you'll see we have some great programs coming up. Pakistan on February 9th, Financial Innovation on February 28th, and, and Cuba. Uh, in in, in March. I want to thank again our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, Alcatel-Lucent, Vizanithi, and SB International Inc. Uh, Remind you always to find the World Affairs Council near you. Go to the website, worldaffairscouncils.org. And remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.